My name is Adam, and I'm so glad to be the senior pastor here at First United Methodist. I want to give a special shout out to our friends at Westside, our campus that meets on the other side of town. They're going to be seeing this message this morning. So hello to you. And I also want to say hi to everybody who will encounter this message either online or on our podcast. We appreciate you doing so. We are in the fourth week of our sermon series called Magic Words. And we're looking at how our lives could change if our language changed. And we've been zooming in on, on these phrases, these, these small words that, that can make a big difference. This week, the magic words are, I could be wrong. And what I hope we'll discover together this morning is that our convictions about God allow us to be humble towards others. There's a concept in science and philosophy, and it's called the Semmelweis Reflex. And this refers to an almost instinctual rejection in our minds of any new knowledge because it contradicts what we're familiar with. It contradicts what we're used to. So when our, when our minds encounter something that, that encroaches on, our, on, on, on what's normal for us or, or long-held beliefs or, or a paradigm that we assume to be true, uh, we reject it. And it's named after Ignaz Semmelweis. Shout out to Ignaz. Not a lot of, that's not high on the uh, list of baby names in 2019. Shout out to him. He was a Hungarian physician and obstetrician, and he was a pioneer in medical sanitation. The, the, the survival rate of both new infants and mothers uh, centuries ago was, was awful. And Semmelweis he noticed a correlation between the mortality rates among mothers whose doctors had recently handled cadavers. And, and I, you know, that's another word for dead folks. It, that's not a word we use all the time. All right, and so to make a long, sad story very short, a long time ago, we didn't have the same knowledge we did today. So you would have doctors like doing autopsies or, or in, inspecting dead bodies with their instruments. And with those same hands and instruments, they would then go deliver children. And the mothers and the, the babies would, would get sick and they would die. And, and what Ignaz Semmelweis came up with is doctors sanitizing their hands and their instruments with bleach. Now again, we're like, hello, duh. This was a long time ago. His results were irrefutable. The clinics that followed his methods saw a dramatic drop in the mortality rates of their mothers and infants. But despite countless healthy mothers and babies, Semmelweis's work, his findings and methods were rejected or ridiculed by the scientific and medical communities. They weren't hearing it. This is because Semmelweis did all of this before Louis Pasteur's landmark work, the now universally accepted germ theory. Semmelweis was ahead of his time and nobody believed him. I mean, how, how sad is that? At the time, Semmelweis challenged the long-held institutional beliefs of science and people discounted his work because it didn't fit with their view of the world. Likewise, some of us may be suspicious or kind of instinctually reject any idea 
that doesn't fit with what we've long held to be true, especially when it's going to be hard. And so how do you react when presented with anything that goes against something you've held as true for a long time? Much of Jesus' ministry challenged dearly held beliefs of the Jewish culture. They were expecting a king who would lead them to, to, to kick out the Romans that were occupying their country. They were expecting a political king to overthrow the Romans. They got a rabbi who rode into the capital on a donkey, not a war horse. It's not what they were hoping for. People expected a political leader who would reestablish Israel in its former glory. What they got was a prophet and teacher who came to establish an eternal kingdom. Jesus made a habit of challenging people's conventional reliefs. He surrounded himself with taxpayers and uh, taxpayers, tax collectors and prostitutes. This infuriated the religious establishment. They were repulsed by this. Jesus healed people on the Sabbath, which the religious authorities thought of as blasphemy. This is, this is a, a word that means something so uh, sinful against God that you would never consider doing it. This is part of what got Jesus crucified. And in our scripture today, we're going to pick up after Jesus' death and resurrection to find out what his followers were doing next. Our scripture today comes from the book of Acts Chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. Acts is short for Acts of the Apostles. And, and it's about the founding of and growth of the early church in the days after Jesus' resurrection. It, it, this, this handful of unimpressive people uh, around Galilee, how they transformed into a worldwide movement. Apostles, now that's a word we use for people that learned directly from Jesus and were, were commissioned into ministry by him. So that's, that's what that word means. And two of these apostles, Peter and John, they've been getting into trouble. They were, they were arrested and thrown in jail for healing a man. And, and as part of their plea deal, I guess we would say, they were told not to preach about Jesus anymore. We'll let you go, but you now have to keep quiet. No more rabble-rousing. Peter and the other apostles, they're back at it again, and they find themselves in prison again. So we're going to pick up in Acts 5, starting with verses 27 and 28. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, Jesus' name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish high council. Uh, many scholars believe it was composed of both religious teachers and, and political leaders. This was the group of people that had just recently put Jesus to death. This was the group of people that had conspired to, to execute Jesus. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance to forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. So I, I don't think we 
can overstate the drama here. The Sanhedrin wants Peter and the apostles to die. And in the face of that threat, we see Peter preaching the good news. Keep in mind, this is the same dude, Peter, that hours after Jesus was arrested, was scared of a little girl even noticing that he used to hang out with Jesus. That Peter denied Jesus three times. He didn't want anybody to know that he had anything to do with him. So what changed? Why the transformation in Peter? To me, the only logical explanation is the resurrection is what changed. The, the apostles were emboldened because they saw that Jesus was dead and now wasn't. I think the change in Peter and the apostles and the courage they had is some of the most compelling evidence that the resurrection is true. I don't know anybody who'd want to be put to death for a lie that they knew was a lie. It doesn't make any sense. Peter is putting his life on the line. He's disobeying the orders of the Sanhedrin who now has him in their clutches for the second time. The threat of death again. And Peter will not be silenced. And so the Sanhedrin is mad and they want to put the apostles to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, so Sherry mentioned this earlier, one thing I've learned in ministry in situations like these, if you say words quickly and confidently, people will assume you know what you're talking about. <laughs> so we're going to go with Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. So Jesus was not the only messianic figure to appear. And what we mean by that is, is the Jews for centuries had been expecting a Messiah or, or an anointed one, a chosen one that God would send to restore their kingdom back to glory. And lots of people claimed to be the Messiah for a long time. Gamaliel lists two examples. And we hear them described in this passage, Theodos and Judas. They were just blips on the radar. Nothing came of them. They came for a little while and were gone just as quickly. They didn't amount to anything. And Gamaliel continues, Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. I think this guy's great. I like Gamaliel. He's arguing that they should be let go. He's open to the possibility that he and the Sanhedrin are wrong. He's essentially saying, you know, listen, what's the point? If we're wrong, then there's nothing to lose. Excuse me. Oh, I messed that up. That's really important. If they're wrong, if the apostles are wrong, then there's nothing to lose. But if we, if the Sanhedrin are wrong, then losing is inevitable. 
If these men are from God, we will not be able to stop it. And we only find ourselves fighting against God. Gamaliel is a Pharisee. He's one of the Jewish elite. He has convictions. He doesn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah or that the apostles should be taken seriously. He doesn't believe any of that. But he's also humble. Gamaliel says, if they're right, then the Sanhedrin won't be able to stop them anyway. And what may be one of the only times a Pharisee could be a positive example for us, what we see on display is convicted humility. Convicted humility. Where we have beliefs, but we hold them in such a way that we remain humble and we don't assume ourselves above or superior to the people we disagree with. Convicted humility. And so I kind of want to treat that like a little equation this morning. Some of us have a lot of convictions, but we're light on humility. I could be wrong is a great place to start. It leaves open the possibility for more conversation. Now I'm not telling you that you shouldn't have beliefs. I'm a pastor. I'm a fan of believing things. But I do think it's possible that we can care more about being right than we do about the people our convictions tell us to love. It's possible that we could care more about being right than we care about loving people that our convictions say we're to love according to Christ. Now others of us may feel quite humble about our own faith and are light on convictions. And if that's you this morning, then I would invite you to consider the possibility that Jesus' resurrection really did happen. What do you have to lose? Blaise Pascal was a French philosopher who posed this question, and it became known as Pascal's Wager. And this is essentially what it means. If you put your faith in Christ and it's true, that's great, you have gained so much. If you put your faith in Christ and there's nothing after this life, then you're not actually out very much. You're, we're all just dead either way. Really encouraging this sermon this morning, Pastor, I know, I know. <laughs> well, I, seriously, if, if you put your faith in Christ and it turns out not to be true, you probably could have slept in a little more, maybe saved yourself some sermon time, listen to them. But, but what are you really out? But if you don't put your faith in Christ and it turns out to be true, you are missing so much. You'll find yourself fighting against God. So what do you have to lose? It's not a bad place to start. Convicted humility. I think it's something that is vitally needed in our society. Where we have convictions, we have our beliefs, and I'm speaking as Christians, but we don't wield them over people. We don't, we don't have the convictions in such a way that we find ourselves thinking we're superior to those we disagree with. We remain humble in order to be in conversation and connection with those with which we disagree. I'm very, very worried about the way that we can vilify those we disagree with. And maybe this isn't a totally new trend, but I think in 2019, 
It's a very real danger. According to the Pew Research Center, in 1994, only 16% of Democrats had a very unfavorable view of the GOP, of the Republicans. Now, 38% do. This is from 2017. In 1994, only 17% of Republicans had a very unfavorable view of Democrats. Now, 43% do. When the Pew Research Center asked Democrats and Republicans to talk about each other, they tended to use the same words. Close-minded, dishonest, immoral, lazy, unintelligent. It's two sides of the same coin. We can hold our convictions so highly that we alienate those who don't view things the same way. It's a very short jump from thinking someone is wrong to not trusting them to not liking them. And if we can remember, I could be wrong, then it leaves open the possibilities for more conversation and increased understanding. It was in the mid-2000s and I was on my way back to work uh, from some errand or something at a church in suburban St. Louis and I saw a car pulled over on the side of the road. We lived, our church was on a really busy street. It was on um, Clayton, Clark, Clarkson and Clayton, if you're familiar with St. Louis. And I saw, I thought, oh, we need to see if this guy needs some help. His car broke down and he needed a tow. Our church was only like a block away. So I picked him up and, and we chatted for a while and waited for his tow truck, helped him get connected with the towing company. And it turns out he was a Muslim imam. That's, that's uh, what we would think of as, as like a pastor. So largely out of politeness after the tow truck came and everything, I said, well, hey, if you ever need anything, give me a call. I mean, that's just something we say to be polite, right? I didn't actually mean it. Well, it turns out he called me and his car is still broke down. Of course, he's getting it fixed. And he called and said, Hey, I appreciate your offer. And <laughs> our mosque is having its grand opening pretty soon. And I'd love to know if you could help give me a ride to help publicize it to some area businesses. So for an afternoon, I gave a Muslim imam a ride and helped promote the opening of a brand new mosque with these flyers to area businesses. I mean, you got a pastor and an imam in a car. It sounds like the beginning of a bad joke or something. <laughs> right, and I'll never forget the conversation we shared. It was great. Uh, Muslims and Christians, yeah, I'm just hitting Republicans and Democrats, Muslims and Christians. I might touch on the death penalty here pretty soon. <laughs> It's great. If you're, if you're playing controversy bingo, let me know. And we got a prize for you in the lobby. Muslims and Christians have very different views about the nature of Jesus and his mission and about the nature of God. And we talked about some of those things. And, and while my new friend and I didn't share the same convictions about ultimate reality or the nature of God, I will never forget the, the chance we had to connect. And I'm very grateful for it. Because anytime I hear something about the Muslims, I think of him. Not some caricature, 
or uh, kind of bundle of bad assumptions. I think about a real person trying to do his best with his convictions, just like me. My hope is that what I was able to display for him was convicted humility. Now listen, I don't plan on making myself the hero of my own sermon stories by giving this imam a ride. All I'm saying is that that, that was an opportunity that I, that I had to try and display some convicted humility. To not necessarily change my beliefs, but, but to hold those in a way that was still welcoming to somebody who felt differently. Because even though we didn't agree on things, we could still do so in a way that wasn't disagreeable. And I am so concerned in our culture that we just need more of that. The polarization and and the entrenchment into our camps and the vilification of the other side. We desperately need convicted humility. And I believe our convictions about God allow us to be humble towards others. This is because our faith informs us of how we're supposed to treat others. If you feel like people who believe differently than you are the enemy, then I would refer you to Jesus' teaching on how we're supposed to treat our enemies. I often have to remind myself that divine judgment is not in the human job description. Amen? Divine judgment is not in the human job description. I get to relieve myself of the burden of judging everybody because that's not my job. It's a great place to be. So when we encounter those with different views than us, I hope that we can be like Gamaliel and leave it in God's hands. May convicted humility lead us to a greater understanding among those that disagree with us and may convicted humility keep us from fighting against God. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the chance to be together across worship styles, across campuses, across geographical locations. We thank you that together we can come and be in your presence. God, help us to be instruments of peace in a a severely divided world. Help us to be people with deep convictions who are anchored to you and yet are humble enough to enter into conversation with those that may not see things the same way we do. God, may we leave this place eager to admit that we could be wrong. That, that, that when we want to make accusations or, or rush to judgment, that we would pause and consider our perception of things may not be the way they really are and open ourselves up to the possibility that we could be wrong. Help us to be people that love you deeply and because of that love, reflect that to others, especially those with whom we disagree. Amen.